It's April of 1916, and while World War I rages on the European continent, in Dublin, a group of rebels have created garrisons around the city and declared Ireland an independent republic. They knew they couldn't hold out forever, but did the Easter Rising actually, in some way, succeed? Hey everyone, I'm Christine, and I'm here with Elizabeth for part two of Footnoting History's examination of the Easter Rising of 1916 in honor of its 100th anniversary. If you're listening to this episode soon after it's released on April 23rd, congratulations, you are doing so on the actual anniversary of the original events. Which was our goal. Exactly. We have a lot to cover today, and as Liz mentioned, I researched this part. She researched the last part. So Liz, why don't you give everybody a brief overview of what we covered in part one in case they happen to have missed it. While Britain was fighting World War I with many Irishmen as part of their army, those who wanted to pull away from the empire saw an opportunity. Although they had hoped to inspire people to rise up in other areas of the country, when plans to be armed by the Germans were thwarted, they realized they couldn't arm as many people as they had hoped, and the odds were definitely not in their favor but they proceeded anyway. When we left left our rebels, it was Easter Monday. They were holding various buildings throughout Dublin by sitting in them and more or less waiting for the British to try and get them out. The main headquarters was the General Post Office, or GPO, located on what is now O'Connell Street. Patrick, and if you listen to our last episode, you can understand that I am now saying Patrick, because I've anglicized. So Patrick Pierce had just stepped outside and read aloud the proclamation of the Irish Republic, of which he was the head of its provisional government, and a green flag with the words Irish Republic flew above the GPO. Joining Pierce there were four of the other men who signed the proclamation, Thomas Clark, Sean McDermott, Joseph Plunkett, and James Connolly. They were accompanied by a doctor, a nurse, who I, I love her so much, a nurse, Connolly's secretary, and a dedicated group of supporters and fighting men. As you probably guessed, this couldn't last forever. While many people were still celebrating the Easter holiday, word of this takeover of places like the GPO, the College of Surgeons, the Four Courts, and Jacob's Factory spread quickly, and the British reacted. Martial law was enacted, and the lives of ordinary Dubliners were seriously disrupted. A well-loved civilian was killed by a British officer. Looting occurred. Homes were caught in the line of fire, and communication between the GPO and the satellite garrisons was difficult. In the GPO, James Connolly was calling a lot of the military shots. He was also unfortunately hit twice by British shooters. Though the doctor who was there attended to him, he was still in a great deal of pain and unable to walk. By the end of the week, he was giving directions from a bed fixed up near his fighting men because to stop would mean to kill morale. It was all very tense and very dramatic. But the final straw came on Friday. The attacks on the British were growing and the GPO was now on fire, burning and filling with smoke to the point of being uninhabitable. As evacuation became the only answer, the group retreated. They left the GPO and they hid in houses on nearby Moore Street. There, they tunneled through the walls from home to home, climbing through and then passing the injured Connolly on the sheet until they stopped at number 16. It was there, on April 29th, that the men gathered around Connolly's bed, because he was resting in the bed of somebody who had lived there, and in a decision that was not unanimous, decided to surrender. 
in a little twist that you don't hear about all too often, it wasn't any of the men who actually approached the British. It was the nurse that Liz just said she really liked. And this is why we like her. A nurse named Elizabeth O'Farrell was with them on Moore Street, and she was asked by them to be the person to bring the surrender under a white flag out to the British. This was no doubt a scary and dangerous job, crossing enemy lines with basically no protection. But Pierce and company worried that a man doing the job might just get immediately shot down. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It does, especially since it was men who orchestrated the whole thing. Yes. Luckily for Nurse O'Farrell, she was not shot, and she made it through. She then brought back word that the British would only accept an unconditional surrender and accompanied Pierce when he turned himself over. Her role didn't end there, though. And O'Farrell spent the rest of her day carrying news to the various garrisons, explaining the order to lay down arms and surrender. She wasn't always met by people who believed her. Also not shocking. Right. Who was she to be showing up telling them to stop? Or people who were ready to give up. But eventually, all of the garrisons stopped their fighting, and they were taken into custody, where, according to many of the recollections later given, they were in some cases made to sleep outside not allowed to eat, and called basically every name under the sun. But, for all intents and purposes, the military rebellion of the Easter Rising was over by April 30th. Once the surrender was complete, the British had to decide how to cope with these rebels who had taken over Dublin and held out for nearly a week. This job largely fell on the shoulders of Major General Sir John Maxwell. Under his watchful eye, over a thousand men and women were interrogated, and 171 people, 170 men, one woman, were tried by court-martial as a result. Now, at the same time as Maxwell was determining what to do, the Irish press was trying to make sense of the events of the past week. In his recent talk for the lecture series being conducted by the Irish Embassy in Great Britain, historian Joe Lee has commented on what exactly the press said, which is really important when it comes to understanding the information that reached the public. Professor Lee explained that during the Rising itself, most of the so-called news was actually speculation and rumor, and this isn't really surprising. The men responsible were in their garrisons, basically. They were inside, and you're not going to get the answer from the British because they also aren't quite up on everything. So there was not much actual information trickling out of Dublin. It was largely set down with martial law. The press pondered the possibilities. Was it inspired by Germany? Was it a class war? Was it a trade union fight? No one could quickly identify that this had been started by a small group of men, mostly without military experience, who basically knew it would not end in their favor. Regardless of why it was happening, though, they all seemed to agree that the situation in Dublin was crazy and that they were very hostile to it. In theory, you could argue that this would mean the British stopping it wasn't the end of the world, or maybe even the public might be glad to see it was over. And at first, that was sort of true. But it didn't last long. Aside from their disapproval of the insanity of Easter week, the Irish press shared one opinion. They really hoped no one would be executed. Now, it wasn't as if they were suddenly cheering on Pierce and company, but they did want to avoid any more bloodshed. But they weren't going to get that wish. In total, 14 men would be executed in Dublin for their involvement. Half of these were the signers of the proclamation, and we've already discussed some of them in our episode last week. Patrick Pierce, Thomas Clark, James Connolly, Thomas McDonough, Eamon Kent, Joseph Plunkett, and Sean McDermott. In addition to them was also Willie Pierce, Patrick's brother, and men who had fought with or led the various garrisons, Con Colbert, Michael O'Hanneran, 
Michael Mallon, Sean Houston, Edward Daly, and John McBride. Now, it is the dawn of May in 1916, and the leaders of the Rising, as well as some of the lesser participants, are being held at Richmond Barracks and awaiting their fate. Over a period of two weeks, they would learn that that fate would be execution. The seven who signed the proclamation, they, well, they certainly expected that this was going to be how they met their end. I mean, they kind of, you could say that they signed their own death warrant, really, if you want to. I'm, I'm thinking of um, the quote from Benjamin Franklin, that assuredly we will all hang to get, separately if we do not hang together. I mean, yeah, they knew that this was it. Yeah, but they also hoped that the other people with less planning involvement or who had been in the brigades as opposed to orchestrating anything would be spared. Right. The way events proceeded, the men would be taken for their court-martial trial and aware of the charges level against them, and the charges typically read like this. Quote, did enact, drew wit, did take part in an armed rebellion and in waging war against his majesty the king, such an act being of such a nature as to be calculated to be prejudicial to the defense of the realm and being done with the purpose of assisting the enemy. End quote. Then things went rather quickly, with the defendants sometimes addressing the court and wanting to point out that no, they did not want to aid Germany, a.k.a. quote the enemy. They did what they did entirely for Ireland. Following the trial, they were brought to Colmanum Jail, located west of Dublin city centre, and put in a cell to await the verdict. Side note, if you ever have the opportunity to visit Kilmainham, please take it. It's one of my favorite places to visit, which sounds weird because it's a jail and people died there. But there are pictures of it on footnotinghistory.com's post for this episode that I took on my last visit. And I can't stress enough how fascinating it is to visit and see not just where these men, but many men and women were held and have left their marks. Definitely worth taking the time to go to. And you should send us your pictures as well. Yes, of if course. If you go there. Anyway, now that I've just given my things to do in Dublin moment... <laughs> Which is visit a jail. The sentence of death by firing squad would, in most cases, only be handed down less than 24 hours before the actual event. The men would then have access to a priest and the ability to request visits from their loved ones. Now, of the prisoners' writings that I've read, it appears that only Con Colbert, who fought in the Marrowbone Lane garrison, likely did not take advantage of this. He wrote letters to his family saying that he knew it would be too difficult for them to see one another. Others, though, had visits from their mothers, brothers, sisters, wives, children, etc. It was obviously a less than joyful experience. The family members, often unaware of the sentences up until this point, would be summoned in the middle of the night by a military representative and then taken immediately to the prison. They would then likely pass the relatives of other convicted prisoners coming and going in a similar state of worry and sadness. The meetings took place in the prisoners' cells and were always under complete guard. Family members would later often talk of trying to be strong, but obviously many tears were shed. They described the cells as dark and containing little more than an odd table. The reunions were brief and full of reassurances that this was a fate the men accepted, indeed even considered an honor. And Christine and I were actually talking about that, that these men would be so, I don't want to say happy, but would be so, yeah. Oh, no, they, you can say happy. Yeah, you can they'd say be happy. so happy to know that here we are a hundred years later talking about them. Several of the men were recorded as giving buttons from their clothes to their loved ones as keepsakes, since their clothes were basically the only possessions they had at this point. A few hours later, 
typically between 3 and 4 a.m. The men set to be executed for that day, also typically in groups of three or four, um, with Pierce in the first group and Connolly in the last over a week later, were escorted outside. Their hands would be tied behind their backs and their eyes blindfolded. A white paper was fastened above their heart. They would then face the firing squad of several men, some kneeling and others standing behind them. If a priest was present, he would be allowed to anoint the man immediately following the firing of the fatal shot. The executed men ranged in age from 25 to 58, with five of the seven signers of the proclamation being under the age of 40. So they weren't just deaths, they were deaths of relatively young men. So now, in addition to the Irish public reading about the deaths of their friends and family members fighting on the continent for the British during World War I, they were then reading about Irishmen being executed by the British at the same time. And there were personal aspects to the story. Michael Mallon, who fought at the College of Surgeons, didn't just leave behind young children. He also left a pregnant wife. The story of Joseph Plunkett, who we talked about last week, also pulled at heartstrings. The young man we talked about in our last episode as being sickly but enthusiastic about the cause was engaged to a woman named Grace Gifford and he wanted more than anything to marry her, even though he knew he was going to be killed. Still, this was actually arranged for him, and less than 12 hours before his execution, Grace was summoned to the chapel in Kilmainham Jail. Her fiancé was escorted down to her, and they were married there by the prison chaplain. Between the time of their wedding and Joseph's execution, the newly branded Mr. and Mrs. Plunkett were only allowed to spend 10 to 15 minutes together, and it had to be with guards watching them. It may sound like something that came from a film, but it actually did happen. And that's something that the press, of course, would like to talk about. And it's interesting to note that several years later, Grace, so Mrs. Plunkett, was a prisoner in Kilmainham herself during the Irish Civil War. And she's remembered for having painted the Madonna on the wall of her cell. And if you visit today, you can actually see a reproduced version of that in her cell. Or you can just look at our page because I'm going to put that picture up after we record this. (laughs) Or you can do that, but go there too. But still go there. Anyway, perhaps the only story to rival that of Plunkett's marriage was the execution of James Connolly. Connolly was not necessarily someone that was going to be guaranteed to arouse a lot of pity. He wasn't quite as young as some of his counterparts, and many people weren't too fond of his socialist politics. However... Connolly, as you know, had been severely wounded by gunshots to his arm and leg while fighting in the GPO. While everyone else was in prison cells, he was in the hospital unable to walk. His family would later recall that everyone told them that there was absolutely no way the British would execute an injured man. They believed that he would be left until he was healed, and that by then, maybe, you know, things might have cooled off and his sentence wouldn't actually be death. But, you know, they were wrong. Connolly was seen as fit enough to be killed, and he was executed while still more or less immobile on May 12th, along with Sean McDermott, the last two signers of the proclamation to be killed, and that signaled the end of the Dublin executions. Now, wait a minute. You remember Roger Caseman from our last episode. He's the one who went to Germany to get assistance, then came back to Ireland only to get immediately coppered by the British. As we said then, his execution in England didn't happen until August by which time the rising and other executions had been over for three months. I mean, why was the man caught three days before the arising, executed three months after everyone else? 
Between that and the very slow release of the hundreds of people who'd been taken in for their association with the Rising, as you can imagine, this doesn't disappear from people's consciousness quickly. It keeps getting played out in the newspapers. Definitely. And one thing is certain, right? The Easter Rising got people talking, not just in Ireland. A New York Times article from April 30th, 1916, talked to prominent Irish Americans to ask them what they thought of what was going on over in Dublin. Okay, so remember, this is before anybody really knew what was going on, because this is the day that the rising basically finished. New York Supreme Court Justice Goff claimed that he wouldn't be surprised if the rising was actually instigated by Britain in order to give them an excuse to impress the Irish more. I love that, because that sounds so modern to me. 1916 conspiracy theories. But multiple others had a different reaction. They said it was a direct result of Britain postponing the start of home rule. Basically, they believed that if the British had given the Irish some control over their lives, they wouldn't have felt forced to try and throw them off completely. Which, I mean, you can kind of get that, right? Give them a little bit, make them feel important. In the immediate aftermath of the Rising, Britain did try to do something to fix a situation that they could now obviously no longer ignore. For a few minutes, very few minutes, um, about five, yeah, it even appeared that thanks to the work of future Prime Minister David Lloyd George, who I read recently was possibly the only Prime Minister to have Welsh as his main language, his work was a solution reached regarding to how to put home rule into action now instead of waiting. Um, he met separately with the Ulster Unionists and the Irish Nationalists and proposed that a type of home rule could happen, but it would leave the northern counties who wanted to remain a part of the empire out. But then as happens with things that, when it's impossible to make everyone happy, the tenuous potential agreement fell apart. The new attempt at implementing home rule never passed, and for the time being, the complicated relationship between Ireland and England remained as it was before the Easter Rising, only now with the memory of recent events firmly in people's minds. And this actually leads us to some good final questions. Was the Easter Rising of 1916 a success? I think the answer is no, it was not a military success. But yes, it was a success in terms of ultimate outcome. They didn't win immediate independence for Ireland. But then again, by the time the Rising started, they knew that that was basically not going to happen. And you do see that after the Rising, the home rule idea eventually loses steam and the independence movement does start to pick up, at least in the nationalist areas that were originally going to settle for home rule and now are thinking, hey, maybe independence might not be so bad. There was still, of course, the large contingent of the North, the Ulster Unionists, that wanted to stay part of Britain. And as we know today, they are still British. Um, but in the South, you see it, especially in terms of what political parties people began to support. Less than 10 years later, Ireland, minus the northern counties of Ulster that are today Northern Ireland, they still the lower ones split from England, but more blood would be shed before that was realized. Still, I think that it was achieved at all, and relatively quickly, if you consider you know the wide historical context, less than a decade after the rising is really kind of fast. I mean, that means that the rising leaders would have felt that their dying would have been worth it. And again, to go back to who these men were and the fact that they were part of the Gaelic revival that they have now entered into the Irish mythology in its own way, 
I think for like Patrick Pierce and everything, this was their goal. An independent oh, totally. Ireland was obviously one of their goals, but to contribute to the Irish mythology of fighting for their free state um, was, I think, another one. And if if we're still doing this podcast in seven years, we totally have to like start doing them on like the treaty and things like that. Also, and this is my favorite name in all of history. <laughs> this is this there is this it's is my name. favorite name in all of history. One of Ireland's later very prominent and controversial presidents, Eamon de Valera, favorite name. Eamon de Valera had been an active participant in the Easter Rising, but managed to escape execution. And so the Easter Rising was never really forgotten. I guess what it ultimately comes down to, what they did was yes, right? It was a suicide mission because they knew that they weren't going to get the arms from Germany. But as you said, they would consider it basically successful. At, you know, they got their partial independence all over Ireland now, 100 years later. It's being commemorated this year with events like the recent Proclamation Day, which was in March where students were asked to create their own modern version of the 1916 proclamation. There have been parades, lectures, exhibits, all of those things that I plan to go to, but I digress. I'll just give you a quote from the time of Pierce's court-martial to end it. He said, We seem to have lost. We have not lost. To refuse to fight would have been to lose. To fight is to win. We have kept faith with the past and handed on a tradition to the future. You cannot extinguish the Irish passion for freedom. If our deed has not been sufficient to win freedom, then our children will win it by a better deed. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.